This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The Shroud of Turin, also known as the Holy Shroud, is a length of linen cloth bearing the negative image of a man. Some describe the image as depicting Jesus of Nazareth and believe that the fabric is actually the burial shroud in which he was wrapped after crucifixion. What is it? Is it real? What's the story? Barry Schwartz has spent many decades studying and exploring this. He's the editor and founder of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website, which you can check out at shroud.com. Doesn't get more simple than that. And he was also the documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin research project back in 1978. Barry, thanks for joining us on the radio. I'm not sure if this is early or late for you, but it's good to talk to you. Well, it's uh, past midnight, and uh, for me, this is normal. I usually go to bed about 3 or 4, so uh, when you asked me to be on the program, I thought, yeah, I can do that. Wonderful. So well, here I am. it's great to talk with you. So in a, in a nutshell, Barry, what exactly is the Shroud of Turin? Well, as you described it, it's a 14-and-a-half-foot-long sheet of linen cloth made from flax plants um, that bears an image of a crucified, scourged, crowned with cap of thorns, speared man, ventral and dorsal, full front of the body, full back of the body, so it's the entire body shown on this cloth. Um, It bears all of the forensically accurate blood stains and contusions and swelling of the cheekbones and things uh, that one would expect from a man who was, was beaten severely and then scourged with a Roman flagrum and ultimately crucified crowned with a cap of thorns and ultimately uh, stuck with a spear in the side where there's a large uh, blood stain and uh, serum stain uh, at the side wound. So it matches precisely and forensically accurately what uh, has been described in the Gospels as the tortures of Jesus. And where is it located? If I wanted to walk and take a trip to the Shroud of Turin now, where exactly is it right now? It's in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin, Italy, northern Italy, Uh, but you wouldn't be able to see it if you went to the cathedral. It's stored in a special cabinet that's fireproof that's been uh, where the shroud used to be rolled up on a dowel and put in a wooden box. They're not doing that anymore after a fire almost destroyed it again in 1997. They built a special cabinet. It's purged of uh, air and contains argon gas to uh, preserve it and keep it from aging or discoloring, much as the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are mm-hmm. kept in Washington, D.C. It's temperature, humidity controlled by computers. So it's actually better preserved today than it ever has been in its entire history. Now, so, th- since yeah. it's in a uh, Catholic facility in Italy, folks may think that the the Catholic Church embraces 
the narrative that Jesus is on the Shroud of Turin, but that's not exactly the case, right? The Catholic Church is somewhat agnostic when it comes to confirming whether or not this is Jesus' image on the Shroud of Turin, right? Yeah, and and I I think that's probably a wise decision on their part, of course, be it far from me to be speaking for the Catholic Church, but at at the same time, uh, you know, it's controversial enough, I think, that they have looked on it as a a potential image of Jesus, an icon of Jesus, but they've never come out and declared its authenticity. And and I understand why they've done that. I think they're being cautious about it. Uh, it's Look, in the entire history of that cloth, there's only been one in-depth scientific examination of it, and that was back in 1978 when we were given permission to examine it, and it's now 44 years later. You know, we went there to answer one question, how is that image formed? Is it a painting? Is it a scorch? Is it made photographically? And we were really unable to answer the question of how it was formed, but we were able to characterize what's on the cloth, and we can say without a doubt that it's not a painting. It's not an artwork of any kind. There's no paint pigment or binders or anything that would imply an artwork. The image resides in the first couple of microns at the top surface, fibrils only. It does not penetrate through the cloth uh, the way paint or pigment would. Uh, we've eliminated the uh, possibility of it being, a scor- uh, being scorched onto the cloth, which is one of the theories that uh, one of the skeptics came up with, that they took a, a beautiful metal sculpture and heated it up and scorched the image onto the shroud. Uh, but our science proved that was not the case because scorches on the shroud, and there are many documented scorches from a fire in 1532 that are on the cloth. And uh, using something called ultraviolet fluorescence photography, we showed that all the areas of the cloth that had been impacted by a high temperature event, for example, scorching, um, fluoresced when uh, using ultraviolet fluorescence photography. Uh, but the image itself does not fluoresce. And if anything, it quenches the fluorescence of the background. So what that says basically is whatever that image is, it was not created with a high temperature event. So we were able to eliminate that in photography. There's no light sensitive silver salts anywhere on that cloth. We found zero silver anywhere on the cloth, eliminating photography as a possible uh, method of making the image. And so uh, even though we've sort of failed in our attempt to answer the one question we were there to ask, uh, which is how is that image formed? Um, we could characterize the chemistry and physics of it, which we've now, you know, has been published in peer-reviewed literature. But the frustration is, not only did we come back with all this data that we spent three years reducing before our papers were all published in journals, but we brought back with us a thousand new questions. Mm. And so the frustration was, we really wanted to go back. There was planning for a STIRP two. Uh, where we were going to do 26 new experiments, including radiocarbon dating. Uh, But the first 25 that we had recommended, in the end, uh, politics came into play, and our team was not given permission to do a second go-round. So many of the questions, the new questions that were raised by the data we collected back in 78, those new questions have never been answered, and no one has been given permission to go back and re-examine the shroud using 21st century technology. Uh, so it's it, frustrating, but that's the, the way it is. I can imagine. Now, who is the keeper of the Shroud of Turin? Who gets to make decisions about things like who can examine it, who can see it, and so forth? 
Good question, Frank. Back in the 70s, when our team was given permission to examine it, everybody said, well, isn't it nice that the church gave you permission? The church didn't give us permission. The legal owner of the shroud at the time was King Umberto II, the last Duke of Savoy, the last monarch of Italy. Mm. And his family owned it for over 500 years. And so uh, the folks in Turin... Uh, in 1578, it, it was uh, brought to Turin by the Savoy family, and the, they decided to put it in the cathedral there. So the people in Turin became the custodians of the shroud, but the legal ownership never transferred. It still belonged to King Umberto, and he's the one who gave us permission to examine it. Frankly, I believe had it been up to the church, we probably wouldn't have gotten that permission. Interesting. So uh, as it stands today, however... 1983, King Umberto died. Two years later, as his will was uh, put through probate, uh, it was discovered that he decided to leave the shroud, not to his son, as had been historically done in the family for over 500 years, but instead to leave it to the living pope, which was John Paul II at the time. And so he became the legal owner, and upon his passing, it went then to Pope Benedict and now to Pope Francis. So when people tell me that, well, the shroud's only a Catholic thing, and, you know, it's a Catholic uh, relic, I always say, well, yeah, that's true since 1985, but it's been around at least for 700 years, and it was not owned by the church until 85. So now it's the living pope who has the say about who or when it can be examined again, and so far, uh, none of the popes uh, since have authorized any further science to be done, although they have authorized public exhibitions of it uh, a little more frequently than had been done throughout the centuries. So uh, the next public exhibition is tentatively scheduled for uh, 2025, which happens to also be the next holy year of the Catholic Church, and uh, but they have not yet formally announced that. But since that was suggested by uh, Pope John Paul II, it's quite likely that his successors, uh, in this case Pope Francis, will uh, go along with his request and uh, authorize it to be publicly shown again in 2025. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We're talking with um, Barry Schwartz. He's the editor and founder of the uh, internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website. You can check out the website for yourself at shroud.com. There's a ton of fascinating information on there. Uh, Barry, you alluded to 700 years, more or less, of history. How far back can the history of this, the verified history of this specific Shroud be traced? Well, without a a break in the chain of custody back to about the mid-1300s. However, it only became the Shroud of Turin once it was brought to Turin in 1578. So, but before that, it, it bore other names. And there are documented areas in the history, although there are breaks in that chain of custody, if you will, um, that go back 
back to second and third century. So uh, you have to remember that the shroud itself uh, presented the people who discovered it in the tomb with a real problem. It violates a couple of Jewish laws. Number one, it bears an image forbidden to this day by Jews and Muslims. And number two, it contains the blood of the decedent. And Jewish law says that anything with the decedent's blood must be buried with the body. And in the Gospels, it mentions there was a second cloth folded and separate from the main shroud. That was the face cloth that would have been put over Mm -hmm. his head when he was taken from the cross. We still do it today. We cover the face of the dead when they pass. And that face cloth um, is a separate cloth, but because it contained blood and pleural fluids from his lungs, um, that cloth was in the tomb to be buried with the body as uh, in accordance with Jewish law. So, Barry, you know, uh, w- w- you know, so just so folks understand now, if you look at the shroud with a naked eye, you won't see an image of a man, right? Well, you'll see it, but it's only about 20% darker than the background at its darkest point. So the image on the shroud is subtle. The fact that there are burns and scorches that run the length of the shroud on either side of the image uh, adds to the visual confusion when you look at it. It makes it even harder to sort of discern the image that's there. But it's there, and it's there well enough that when photographed and the contrast of the photograph is in, increased, uh, the image becomes very clear. So the, 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 the best way, the image, the, the, just sorry to interrupt, just want to be clear yeah, here, and then I'll, uh, I'll promise I'll let you say whatever you like. The, just So for people to really see the image, the shroud has to be photographed, and then you have to see a negative image of it, right? Correct. But the first photograph of the shroud was made in 1898 by a man named Secundo Pia. Uh, in those days, he had to work with a great big monstrous view camera and glass plates and process them manually in the, in the darkroom himself. Um, and what he discovered when he held up his glass plate is that the lights and darks of the image, of course, on a negative, are inverted. So what was on the shroud is rather obscure and difficult to make out. But when he photographed it and held up his glass plate where the lights and darks had been reversed and the contrast had been increased somewhat, suddenly he was looking at what appeared to be a very positive, natural-looking image on his glass plate. That implied that what's on the shroud has the properties of a photo negative, and when you photograph it and invert those uh, lights and darks uh, the way a negative does, um, now you get a more natural, positive image. So he claimed that what's on the shroud has a property like photographic negative, and of course he was immediately accused of some darkroom tricks or that he manipulated or retouched it. And it wasn't until 1931, 33 years later, that the, photo- the second set of photographs were made in 1931 by Henri, Giuseppe Henri, that verified all of the claims made by Secundo Pia, who made the first photographs. So photography has played an important role, not only in making people aware of the shroud, but in providing access to it so that researchers could study it and begin to try and understand what's on that cloth. It's just, it, and again, I, I'm trying to ask questions as skeptically as I can, but sure. it's difficult to imagine uh, anybody, even if, this, if the verified history of this shroud goes back to the Middle Ages, it's difficult to imagine somebody in the Middle Ages, when they didn't even have photography, creating something that would only be seen visibly 
through a, not only a photograph but the negative image of a photograph, unless it was a time traveler that created <laughs> something like this. Yeah, I, and look, and and this is I have to say this that at the very beginning of this, when I was first asked to be on the team. Um, I said no. I didn't want to get involved with it. Uh, I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, and so I never had any, obviously, any emotional attachments to the subject. But I didn't want to get involved in, in anything that was more of a religious nature. And I was assured that if I looked at who these team members were, scientists from Los Alamos National Sandia Labs, both American weapons laboratories, um, and two members from the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, uh, one of whom was head of imaging on Voyager, Viking, Mariner, and Galileo projects. Uh, we're talking about hard science here. Uh, empirical scientists who were not in this for some religious point mm-hmm. of view, but simply to try and determine this kind of elusive image and what might have caused it. So we were uh, the team was put together with the experiments specifically designed to go there and determine how that image was formed and to characterize it scientifically so that it could be studied and perhaps determine how that image came about. Has your work on the Shroud and your study going back that many decades affected your your faith at all and whether or not Jesus did, uh, did die and rise from the dead as the New Testament says? Well, it, it has had an impact on my faith, but not not in in the overt way that most people would think. Um, as I said, I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. My parents were both uh, immigrants, born in Poland, so I was first generation here. God was part of everything in our household every day. Our grandparents lived with us, um, but I had sort of walked away from religion right after my bar mitzvah when I was thirteen. Mm-hmm. And I didn't look back until I was in my 50s, had already studied the Shroud. And after I built the website, people started asking me, well, what, what do you believe? And they weren't talking about the Shroud anymore. They were talking about faith, much as the question you posed. And uh, so it hasn't had that kind of impact on me. I'm not a Messianic Jew or a completed Jew, as my Messianic friends like to say. Um, but it did sort of prompt me when people started asking me what I believed, it sort of forced me to go back and look within myself to just to sort of Understood. figure out what I did to believe. I, did, I wasn't even, hadn't even thought about it throughout most of my early adult life. So it did force me to reconfront my own beliefs, and it did reconnect me to my faith in God in general, but not necessarily as a Christian or a Messianic Jew. Um, and we're talking with Barry Schwartz. You can check out his website, shroud.com. Uh, very quickly, a couple of quick questions before I uh, have to let you go because we are running short on time. Sure. I know I know there's been you alluded to some of the forensic evidence in support of this shroud being genuinely the shroud that Jesus was was crucified in or buried with. I know there's been some hematological analysis of the uh, of the blood that's on the shroud, and it found that it belongs to the blood the blood type AB. Is there any significance to the blood type being AB? Well, some people claim that there is. I, I'm not uh, convinced that there's anything dramatically significant about that. Uh, if that is in fact, now also remember this that. The blood type testing that we now have in the 21st century is even more sophisticated than what was available to us 44 years ago when we did our examination. So uh, it would be good, perhaps, to 
re-examine the blood today using the latest technology. And I would say that's true of all of the technology that we used to examine the shroud originally, that the technology has advanced dramatically. In some cases, we have technologies existing today that didn't even exist back in the 70s when we did our exam. So I think that another examination of the shroud, given uh, the opportunity to repeat uh, the similar kind of testing that we did in 78, uh, using the 21st century technologies that are available to us now, perhaps could answer some of the mm. questions that remain unanswered. And that would day. have to be a decision made by the Pope? In this case, yes. Yeah. Uh, finally, sir, the a lot of people say the most condemning evidence against the Shroud's legitimacy came from the 1987 scientific expedition where the carbon dating of some fibers from the shroud showed it being no more than 750 years old, nowhere close to the 1900 and change years old that it would need to be. How do, What's your take on that carbon dating from that 1987 situation? Well, look, as it stands today, we now have, I think, five peer-reviewed papers that have evaluated the radiocarbon dating of 1987-88, it turns out that they only took one sample. It was a little strip from along one of the edges of the cloth. And it turns out that that strip has a gradient of dates from one end to the other covering hundreds of years. So there is no way that that sample could be used to date anywhere else on that cloth because it was an inconsistent or inhomogeneous sample. So if that sample was the same at both ends of that strip, then that date would be much more corroborated. Unfortunately, it it wasn't. And sadly, for 27 years, the three laboratories and the British Museum that was the overseer of the three laboratories that did the dating tests refused to release their raw data. It took the Freedom of Information Act in 2018 and a French researcher going to England and forcing the British Museum to release the raw data. And once that was done and it was able to be analyzed, it turns out that they did, they threw away certain uh, tests that they ran Got it. to achieve a 95% accuracy. If they'd kept all of the tests that they did, they could have never reached the degree of accuracy that they Barry, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you very much for the time this morning. I'll look forward to chatting again in the future. My pleasure, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.